or, or um, watching it later. We're glad that you've joined us here um, virtually. Amazing times that we live in. So praise the Lord for technology and ability to to gather in all the various ways and, and to rejoice in our faith in Jesus Christ. We're in a sermon series called Winning Over Worry. And and uh, today's sermon is entitled The Prescription for Peace. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. We're going to look at this passage today and a week from today. We're going to spend a couple weeks here. And um, we are now in the month of September, month 8 of the COVID-19 pandemic. Month 8. And... Uh, you know, to some degree or another, this has been a traumatic season for us. Some of us put very low stock in how serious it is. Some of us put a whole lot of stock in how serious it is. Some of us think our health is robust and not going to um, be affected by it. And some of us, you know, have, have underlying health conditions that if we got the COVID-19 virus, it would instantly be very serious. So we kind of cover the spectrum, um, cover the map there on all of this, but to one degree or another, some more than others, we are affected by this. And so I'm addressing it on a weekly basis in this sermon series, Winning Over Worry. I mean, life can produce worry anyway, and then 2020, you know, with with the pandemic on top of everything, and, and, you know, some enforced, some voluntary changes, um, plenty to worry about. So, some of it, you know, there, we all know somebody, I, I think, who, who's lost a job. Others have seen their finances gyrate up and down and, and seem unstable. Uh, and some of us have lost loved ones. And um, mental illness and addiction and domestic violence are on the rise this year. And it's being attributed due to the nature of the pandemic and the separation it causes in human relationships. And you add on to that the political uh, suspicion and savage disunity that abounds in our nation today. Um, I know families who long to marry off their children, and and they've chosen to delay that. The the, um, bride and groom have chosen to delay that because they don't feel like they can get their family together to have a quote-unquote normal wedding. I know people who have delayed... uh, a funeral service or a memorial service for months so far. And and now they're looking at maybe next summer or next spring doing it because they don't feel comfortable in, in gathering their family together um, to do that. So all these difficulties can bring on anxiety with a capital A, right? Um, and anxiety may be uh, the biggest issue in our lives right now. So... Let's ask the question, how do we deal with anxiety? How do we deal with this anxiety? And I want you to know, first of all, that experiencing moments of anxiety is not a sin. So don't, don't you know, like, make it worse by beating yourself up every time you experience some anxiety. It's not a, a sin to experience anxiety. But camping there, living there as a, a character trait with anxiety, I think that is a sin. And we may be living in a place of shelter to some degree. You know, we're not interacting, whether by our choice or other choice, we're not interacting in a normal way. So we may be living in a place of shelter, 
But we need to be careful not to live in a place of anxiety. And I know some people have anxiety disorders, and that's a, a, a psychological a condition that impacts your life. And, and I don't mean, I, I will not shame anybody like that. I will walk with you and support you and love you and never judge you. Um, that's a whole, you know, that's a whole nother animal. But, but for most of us, the day-to-day um, way we live our lives should not be in a place of anxiety. And of course, you can't just, we can't just tell ourselves or tell somebody else, don't worry, don't be anxious, just stop it. Um, I don't know anybody that that doesn't produce anxiety in. You know, it, that doesn't make anything better. So we can't just like dismiss it and say, oh, get over it. You know, it's not, that's not it either. Instead of that, we need to replace anxiety with its opposite, which is peace. Do something proactive. Do something positive. And, and not just deny and not just um, deride, but to do something positive. To replace anxiety with its opposite, which is peace. In order to s- subdue our anxious thoughts, we need something even more powerful than our anxiety. And guess what? It's the Lord Jesus Christ and the peace that He provides. In Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at four verses, verse 4 through 7, and four key words. We're going to cover some of them today and some of them a week from today. Four key words to help us deal with anxiety. Here's the four words that you'll find in these verses. Rejoice, relax, release, and rest. Rejoice, relax, Release and rest. And, and we're going to find either the word or the concept for all four of those in this passage. Let's read together Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Every time I hear that, I think of a, of a praise song. I don't hear it anymore. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Right? That's where I go in my mind every time... I read that verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a great promise. Amen indeed. The word of the Lord from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. So, rejoice. Rejoice in difficult circumstances. Verse 4, no matter what comes our way, Paul provides hope that we can live not in denial of our circumstances, but that we can live above our circumstances and choose to rejoice. Um, rejoice, or some form of that word rejoice, occurs 16 times in the four chapters of the book of Philippians. And here in verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. So Paul repeats himself. And he begins 
with not one, but two commands, commands to rejoice. He doesn't give us good advice here. He commands us, rejoice. The form of that verb in the original language is a command, an imperative. He's telling us, rejoice. And I'll say it again, rejoice. So I'd encourage you maybe to go in your Bible and and to put two exclamation points because he repeats it. Put two exclamation points in your Bible after both of the uses of rejoice there. Let it stand out. The the fact that the verb rejoice is a command, it shows us maybe that that for most of us, if not all of us, um, rejoicing in the Lord isn't a natural thing to do. We need to be told to do it. We need to be commanded to do it. Rejoicing is tough sometimes especially in the midst of difficult circumstances. So let me be clear here about a common misunderstanding. Paul was not teaching that we should just be la la la, skipping around with a smile, totally detached from the real world. You know, um, this is me, but I I think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, the guy like has his arms and legs cut off. And Tis but the flesh wound, you know. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be detached from reality, you know. Um, oh, cut my hand off. Praise God, you know. Um, it's not teaching that we should be skipping around with a smile and not acknowledging the real world as it exists and is going on around us. But instead of that, Paul gives the commands to rejoice you know, you know what his circumstances were when he writes this letter to tell us to rejoice? Um, he was in lockdown. He was under house arrest, chained by a handcuff on the other end of which was a Roman guard. Um, and he was facing possible death for his faith. Hmm. And he's telling us, Rejoice. He was also writing to believers who were suffering for their faith. Um, We suffer some for our faith today. They suffered a lot for their faith when Paul wrote the church in Philippi. So we need to make sure that we understand the meaning of rejoice. To rejoice means to treasure and trust God no matter what. To treasure Him and to trust Him no matter what. The circumstances. Not that they don't exist or not that, that we think everything will turn out easy for us, but to tr- treasure Him and to trust Him um, in the circumstances and sometimes in spite of the circumstances. Your contentment and peace rest in Him, in God. Your contentment and peace rest in Him. It's important to note that the object of our rejoicing must be in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Okay? The object of our rejoicing is the Lord. And the preposition in this sentence, in, is significant. Um, Maybe we thought before the pandemic uh, that we could rejoice in all kinds of things. We could go, it was easy, you know, to go to sporting events, to go to concerts, to school achievements, work success was, was easier to come by. Financial security seemed more likely 
for many of us. Um, but now, most of those things have been either taken away or curtailed or at some level we think it's risky to attend because we're going to be around a bunch of people and they might have the Rona, you know, the coronavirus. Um, We can and must rejoice in the Lord in this season of some level of sheltering and, and isolation and choose to develop lifelong habits that will sustain us through this unusual time and far beyond for the rest of our days. This command to rejoice is to be fulfilled always. Rejoice in the Lord always. That means in every circumstance. Every circumstance, including those that are adverse, those that are that we wouldn't choose, those that are hard. Um, life's like a yo-yo. You know, it goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down. Our circumstances change, our finances fluctuate, our bodies deteriorate. The Lord is the only constant. Jesus is the only constant. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What's the same? Who's the same? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. He's unchanging. You want something that's stable, that's consistent, that will never change? It's Jesus Christ and the results of faith in Him. We can rejoice in Him. We can rejoice in Him, in Jesus, even when life is at its very most difficult. One of the things I do is um, I'm a hospice chaplain. And so I walk with patients and their families through the end of life. And I have a current hospice patient who's just a right-on Christian. And I, I hear her and watch her display joy. And, and she's deliberately blessing her children and her grandchildren, deliberately speaking of her faith to them and speaking of her hope. And she's not denying anything. You know, she can tell you in specifics the state of her health and, and the decline of the state of her health. But she's got the joy of the Lord. And it just oozes out of her all over everybody that's around her. It's an amazing thing. Um, just an amazing thing. We can rejoice in Him even when life is difficult. So what does it mean, practically speaking, to rejoice in the Lord always? Well, first of all, um, we must make a choice. To rejoice. I like how that choice to rejoice. Choice to rejoice, right? Um, rejoicing in the Lord always. We must make the choice. That begins with a conscious choice, an act of the will. So on a daily basis, we choose to believe that whatever the problem, 
whatever the people, we can live a life of continual rejoicing. Imagine that. So try this experience. Experiment, excuse me. Write the word joy on a piece of paper and display it where you struggle. So you can look up from your circumstances and see the word joy. Um, place it by your home office work desk. Place it, you know, if you work outside the home, place it there. If you drive frequently from one location to another in your job, put it on your dashboard or something uh, where, you, where you can see it. Don't put it in front of the speedometer. You know, you don't want to be going 40 and then 25. But um, rejoice. And when you're weary, you're working, maybe you're in front of a computer all day and you're weary of screen time, or it's hour 12 and a half and you're still out in your pickup going to the next field, um, and you're tired and you're weary. See that word joy that you've displayed to catch your attention and rejoice in the fact that you have a job. Praise the Lord. Um, place it in the kitchen, and when you're tired of coming up with creative meals, rejoice that you have food. Uh, place a small joy tagline on the back of your smartphone, and when you're feeling lonely, rejoice in the fact that you have technology to stay in contact with people that you can't be with physically who those relationships, those people provide encouragement in your life. So make a choice to rejoice moment by moment, day by day. Second, start and end your day in God's Word, the Holy Bible. When I was 24, I came across George Mueller's 1841 booklet entitled Soul Nourishment First. And if you've never read much about George Mueller, he's worth reading about. Um, A great man of faith who did amazing ministry um, from the ground up. Did significant things in his time. Soul nourishment first. And he says this, The first great and primary business every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. And he insisted that the way to get one's soul happy in the Lord was by spending time in God's Word. Even though Mueller was a legendary man of prayer. I mean, he prayed about... I mean, he, he founded a ministry and had no funding, and he prayed until the funding came in. I mean, just an amazing um, man. Amazing Christian. Uh, so he, he's this legendary man of prayer, but he says he learned to first... Feed his soul in the Word before he went to prayer. Um, Even if you're not a morning person, I challenge you to find a way to get into the Word or get the Word into you as you start your day, every day. If your anxious thoughts hit in the evening, um, read the Word right before you drift off to sleep so God's Word is in your spirit as you go to bed. Nehemiah chapter 8 is a great chapter in the Bible. And tucked in the midst of this passage, we find verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. In that verse is this phrase. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay, so, so stand in front of the mirror and bless yourself by, by acting like um, um, you're in a formal choir 
and sing that song. The joy of the Lord is my strength. That'll bless your heart. Watch yourself in the mirror doing that. Um, That phrase is there. The joy of the Lord is your strength. God's word is both your joy and your strength. Make sure not to neglect it during this time when we're not together as much as we were accustomed to and would like to be. And third, spend time in praise and worship. The original reformer, Martin Luther, said the devil hates a singing Christian. Um, and some of us don't think we sing well. And, and there's a joke that I've heard before that, that my singing is an affliction on God's people, but a blessing to God. Um, so, you know, sing anyway. The devil hates a singing Christian, Martin Luther said. So if you really want to annoy the devil, sing. If you don't like to sing, listen to some hymns or praise songs. Watch some YouTube videos of your favorite worship songs. There's ways that that we can play Christian music that celebrates faith in Jesus Christ. We must always remember it's very difficult, if not impossible, to rejoice in the Lord through song and be anxious at the same time. The, The rejoicing through singing, worshiping, pushes anxiety out. Over the course of my ministry in five different churches, I've heard again and again that praise and worship is how many people, both young and old, experience God. Praise and worship. So worship the Lord in song today and every day. Um... I have, a, I have a few worship songs that, that are my favorites, and I, and I play them loud and proud and, <laughs> and you know, sing off-key and, and uh, have a great time. So praise the Lord in worship and song every day. And finally, the last uh, recommendation I have for you is read Christian biographies. When we read biographies, we'll actually be encouraged. Because some of our greatest heroes of the faith wrestled through seasons of dryness and discouragement and despair even. Um, Here's some suggestions. Read about Amy Carmichael. Read about Corey Ten Boom. Read about Darlene Rose. Read about Martin Luther or Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon. All of these are heroes of the faith who suffered through some hard times. And were ultimately triumphant by faith in Christ and, and choosing to worship Him. And if you don't care to read, um, there's an app called Audible. There's another app called Christian Audio. And you can install those on your phone or your tablet or your, your laptop and listen to books being read to you. Reading or listening to these accounts reminds us that we're not alone. Or we're not the only one that goes through this stuff. And it will encourage us to persevere in our faith. The decision to rejoice, even today with life as it really is, will develop a mindset that will enable us to walk through even tougher times, should they come. So, the first way to deal with anxiety is to rejoice in difficult circumstances. 
The next way is relax in difficult circumstances. To rejoice in the Lord always is to relax in difficult circumstances. Paul encourages us to relax. To relax in the fact of the Lord's coming and to let gentleness exude out of us. In the first part of verse 5, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul writes, Let your gentleness be evident to all. Hmm. Um, this statement is a command, just like rejoice. It's not a, a suggestion. Paul is telling us, do this. God's Word is telling us, do this. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So gentleness is an inner character trait that is expressed outwardly and when expressed outwardly is evident and discernible, can be seen by other people. In Paul's letter, uh, this Greek term, gentleness, what Paul is saying is our gentle spirit is to be known to all people. Our gentle spirit is to be known to all people. Paul's use of the word all or everyone, depending on your translation, refers to believers and unbelievers alike. Obviously, this is not an easy command to obey. <laughs> um, we are really tempted to pick and choose. Those who agree with us, those who like us, those who make us feel good. Uh, we're all about being gentle with. But those who uh, might want to come to argue with us or to dispute with us, um, sometimes not so much. But Paul's telling us to let our gentleness be evident to all or to everyone. Um, we all know believers who concern us or annoy us or disturb us. Um, Satan loves to promote relational challenges throughout the church of Jesus Christ. He's always about that. But we're commanded to actively make known our gentleness to our fellow believers. And the command also includes those who are hostile to the Christian faith. I don't know if you knew this, but we live in a very polarized culture today. Um, there, you know, we add on that the tensions of the COVID-19 pandemic, and then you add on that a, a presidential election year in politics. Um, when discussing the volatile moral and ethical issues, we must choose to be gentle and gracious. It says in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And we will have wrath directed our way. And then we have a choice to make. And the choice that Paul is telling us to make is to let your gentleness be evident. A gentle answer turns away wrath, Proverbs tells us. In difficult circumstances, intense discussions, we must be wise in our conduct and gentle with our words. Um, it might help you to seek out an accountability partner who will hold you accountable. Someone that you can come and confide in, and them and you, and um, hold each other accountable to be gentle with others. Um, I don't know that that's ever come natural to me, to tell you, tell you the truth. 
and and um, my military service, boy, there 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 was stuff that needed to happen now, and gentleness was not the tactic that expressed that, and, and so um, on top of my natural proclivities, I, I went through this time when everybody barked at everybody, and and it was the love language, you know. And and I've spent the rest of my life um, learning that that doesn't translate <laughs> outside of that unit in the military, you know. So um, I'm preaching to me today, and and want to be held accountable to be gentle with others. Um, farther on in back in Philippians chapter four verse five, Paul imparts to us some motivation. With a four-word statement. What's the motivation? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Do you feel His presence? Do you, do you know He's coming? Again, the Lord is near. The soon return of Christ kept Paul from being discouraged by his circumstances. He knew that he would be with Jesus very soon. Remember? Chained to a Roman guard. Under house arrest. Uh, with the threat of death penalty for um, living like a follower of Jesus in the Roman society. Um, Paul, the the soon return of Christ kept Paul from being discouraged by his circumstances. He knew he would be with Jesus very soon. And we need to live with that same awareness. Um, The Lord could return soon. Um, You know, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. One way or another, we could be with Jesus very soon. That should be a hopeful thing. That should be a thing that, that makes just an abundance of joy well up in us. Um, this return of the Lord, that the Lord may return imminently, it's a constant biblical theme. You know that? In the Old Testament, there are over 1,800 references to the Lord's return. That's a lot. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament. In 260 chapters, there are more than 300 references to the return of Jesus Christ. One out of every 30 verses is about the return of Christ in the entire New Testament. 23 of the 27 New Testament books give a prominent place to the subject of Christ's return. For every prophecy in Scripture concerning Christ's first coming, there are eight prophecies about Christ's second coming. Those are amazing, remarkable statistics. So, it's a theme (laughs) in the Bible. And they lead me to want to ensure that I've been gentle with all people. I don't want the Lord Jesus to have to clean up my mess and settle my interpersonal conflicts in glory. I want to live in light of Christ's coming. And may we choose to pray for greater awareness that Christ could return any time. And to live like that. So the second way to deal with anxiety is to relax in difficult circumstances. And and the last topic today is release in difficult circumstances. The third way to deal with anxiety is to release in difficult
difficult circumstances. Let stuff go to release. We've now come to the heart of this brief passage. Um, Amazon.com and the YouVersion Bible app track um, the most shared or highlighted or bookmarked Bible verse. And guess what? The single verse of Scripture that has been identified over the last, as of the first of this year, was identified over the last three years as consistently being the most highlighted or bookmarked or shared verse in the Bible. It's in today's passage. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And keep in mind, these figures were all before this COVID-19 pandemic. Before all this added added anxiety. Um, How much more today do we need this verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul wrote, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Wow. Um, Maybe this is a verse we need to memorize in 2020. And so I challenge you to memorize it. Verse 6 issues a negative command, what not to do, and a positive command, what to do. There's nothing we should worry about. Absolutely nothing. And like I said, moments of worry come naturally to all of us. But we don't live there. We don't camp there. That doesn't define how we are day in and day out, moment by moment. Um, and, the fir- and then there's one positive command. What we are supposed to do. The fir- in the Greek text, the first word of that verse is nothing. So... Uh, the Greek word order is more flexible than the English word order, and, and sometimes a word appears out of order to our English thinking mind, but it's put at the front in the original Greek text when it was spoken or written to emphasize it. The first word in the Greek of verse 6 is nothing. Paul's emphatic point is there's nothing we should worry about. Absolutely nothing. Paul, um, he does some repeating. And, and um, scholars think that, that in this verse, he's repeating something that Jesus repeated three times in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Three times Jesus said, do not worry. And Paul is... is perhaps in his mind, thinking of the words of Jesus. And we looked at that passage some weeks ago. Paul would agree with Jesus. Worry is a waste. It reminds me of a bumper sticker. I haven't seen it for a while, but I saw it before. Don't worry about tomorrow. You did that yesterday. (laughs) And that's kind of a a joking way of, of making a really important point. We must trust that God is in control. Do you really believe that? We've got to trust in Him and trust in that fact that God is in control. 
And what happens to us is within His will. Even, even if it means hardship and death, it's within His will. What's the worst thing that can happen? We die and go to heaven. Pretty good. Um, do we see it like that on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis? And yet Paul challenges the challenge of his word when people are in the midst of difficult circumstances. Or that he, he challenges us, but he knows the Philippians had good cause for anxiety. Um, like m- most of the early Christians, they faced persecution and poverty and separation from friends and family because of their faith. To the point that they often struggled to get enough food and clothing and shelter. All the skilled trades back then were organized in guilds. And you had to go to that guild to get a trade person uh, in a certain trade to do something for you. And they ostracized and kicked out the Christians. And so there goes your livelihood. You know, you might pick up some, some little secret side jobs, but you didn't have a livelihood like you used to. Um, so they had struggles, and they had circumstances in their lives that were, unfaith- that were unfavorable to them. To the point that they struggled to get food and clothing and shelter even. They faced spiritual challenges just like any church. There were false teachers who had joined their fellowship. There were a couple members who were causing disunity in the church. Paul even calls them out by name in chapter 4, verse 2 of Philippians. Uh, Two women named Euodia and Syntyche. Um, Ouch! (laughs) Must have been significant. These Christians in Philippi weren't immune from troubles, from trials, from temptations and anxieties. In many respects, um, their circumstances were even more difficult than ours today. So, how can we overcome anxiety? Paul makes it really plain here in verse 6, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. There you go. Talk to God. And the word but here, just this little three-letter word that we kind of skip over, this transitional word, it's critical. In light of our tendency to be anxious, Paul writes but. But is a stark word of contrast. Instead of that. In spite of that. Better than that. Instead of being anxious, try prayer. He then offers another glaring contrast between everything and nothing. The believer is to be anxious for nothing, but praying about everything. Verse 6 uses no less than four different terms for prayer. Prayer, petition, thanksgiving, and requests. And, and uh, there's this variety of words not simply to identify four distinct types of prayer. So don't let this become like a legalistic burden. And oh, did I, I did those two? Did I do the other two? Is my prayer right? Uh, is God going to accept it? It's not like that. 
I believe Paul uses this variety of words here, not only, not primarily to, to dis- identify four distinct types of prayer that we engage in, but as, as a, a repetitious thing that um, he used elsewhere. In verse 7, he uses three words, mind, heart, and thought, in the original language. And um, in this passage, he repeats four times the word all to make sure we understand how comprehensive the commands that he's given us are. Um, Paul is using four words to describe prayer in verse 6 to emphasize its importance. Um, Nothing replaces prayer, but prayer replaces anxiety. So, we're called to pray. We're going to end with that today. We're called to pray. Prayer is of primary importance in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. So, pray always. Our response to anxiety that is very real in our lives is to rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord always. So let me say it again. Rejoice. The blessings of being a child of God far outweigh trials and circumstances. So let it be said of us that we choose to rejoice. In difficult circumstances, we choose to relax. In difficult circumstances, we choose to release. We relax and we release our circumstances as we pray to the God who saves us. And we trust in Him for this life and for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do choose to pray. Thank You, Jesus, for our salvation. We come to You Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for He is our Savior and He is our Lord. And we thank you for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that's been poured out upon your church, upon these people that gather here today in this sanctuary and that gather virtually or remotely through the amazing technology that's available in our day and time. Thank you that we can be together. Thank you that you are here in us and that you move among us. And we choose to rejoice. The worst that can happen to me is that I go to heaven. Praise God. Life is good. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I love you.